0: Hello, welcome to Old Testament Studies and unacademic Modern History. My name is Nick, and my goal is to bring Old Testament scholarship from the ivory towers of academia to the common language of every podcast listener. I want to break down the technical conversations and methods of analyzing the Old Testament so that everyone can be involved in the academic conversations about what the Old Testament is where it came from and what its message is. Each episode, I want to look at the life and academic contributions of one modern Old Testament scholar to understand how their ideas developed and show their impact on our understanding of the Old Testament. So, this week is William Stevens. William Stevens was born in 1732 in the Southwark parish of St. Saviour's in London and was baptized at St. Saviour's Church. On march twenty seventh, of seventeen thirty-two. His mother, Mary, was the sister of Samuel Horne, who was the rector of the parish of Otham in Kent, and the father of George Horne, who would become a really well known theologian and actually close friend of William Stevens. However, Stevens' father, who was also named William, was a butcher. So, though his father appeared to be in kind of a lower class trade, his mother had a little bit higher social standing, and especially within the church hierarchy. While Stevens was still a child in the late 1730s, his father died, it seems quite unexpectedly. And during this time, Stevens had been attending a school in Newington Butts and was taught by Mr. Crawford. But after his father's death, his mother brought him to Maidstone, Kent so she could be closer to her brother. After this move, Stevens became friends with George Horn, being his cousin, and he continued his studies at Maidstone School under Reverend Diodotus Bai. So, both Horn and Stevens attended this school and studied classics. Bai taught his students Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, which Stevens would become quite proficient in, Actually, the language Stevens became most proficient in was French, but that was likely due to his trade, which we will get to in just a minute. So Stevens ended his schooling at age 14 in 1746 and became an apprentice to John Hookham, who was a wholesale hosier. Stevens actually moved into Hookham's residence in London during this time and then lived there as a bachelor for the rest of his life. As a note of foreshadowing, his friend and cousin, George Horn, went on to Oxford, then joined the Church of England, and then became a theologian at Oxford, and the Dean of Canterbury and Bishop of Norwich. So he went a totally different direction, but they remained close friends during all of these moves, even though obviously their lifestyles from hosier to bishop were quite different. So you'll actually see theology and a connection with Horne's theological circle being the Hutchinson group a little later in the episode. Anyhow, in 1746, at 14 years old, Stevens became the apprentice to Hookham and moved into Hookham's house. Hookham, as a wholesale hosier, was making and selling silk stockings, socks, and gloves in large quantities because he was a wholesaler. And how Stevens became connected with Hookham is unclear, but somehow he became the apprentice. Even as Stevens was learning the trade, he did maintain a strong commitment to the Anglican church. So, to give you an idea of what this looked like, it included Stevens' attendance at Sunday services in both the morning and afternoon, He also was in attendance at the weekly prayer book offices, uh, at the very least on Wednesdays and Fridays, but also additional days during the week. Uh, When the communion services were held, he was frequently receiving it and described it as a form of sacrifice. But he also had some really odd habits in the church, like standing up during services when The praises of God were sung, even though he was the only one in the congregation standing. Also, towards the end of his life, he adopted clothing that looked like a priest, so he would wear black clothes and a clerical wig. And apparently it was so close to looking like a churchman that a cleric named John Prince believed that Stevens had taken church orders. He had not. There is even a story about Stephen's attending a service by his friend George Horne, and he was so excited to see him take the pulpit to preach that during the sermon, he rubbed his hands and laughed to himself, and this was apparently so distracting that an elderly woman stopped George Horne, who was bishop at the time, after the service to thank him for the sermon, but also tell him, quote, "'Sir, there was a good-for-nothing gentleman in a wig who sat in yonder pew, who did nothing but laugh and make faces at you the whole time you were in the pulpit, end quote. So he was a quirky kind of person, but apparently quite devoted to the church, as well as his business interests. So going back to Stephen's time as an apprentice under Hookham, his time as apprentice lasted for about a year, and then he continued to work in Hookham's firm afterwards. In 1754, Stevens was rewarded with a share in Hookham's business and was made a full partner. However, Stevens apparently worked tirelessly to achieve this and then began to suffer from some health issues. Keep in mind, he was in his 20s at this time. Specifically, two years after he was made a partner in Hookham's business, Stevens was forced to spend time at the Bristol Spa to recuperate, and writing from there in 1756 to a friend, Stevens described how it was his hope that, quote, his heavenly landlord would thoroughly repair this poor, ruinous clay cottage of mine, end quote. So he doesn't actually say what illness he was suffering from, but Stevens could nonetheless report that his health was recovering, but that he was falling apart, probably from overwork. So since people, even in this letter that he was writing, were noting Stevens as a lay divine, that is to say a significant church member, even though he didn't obtain specialized religious education, it might have been that his own investment in time and probably finances in private study was substantial, and this may have been damaging to his health, because he was studying church-related things while also splitting his time with his regular work commitments. However, following his rise to success in the hosiery trade starting in the mid-1750s, around the time of this letter, he likely had more time to devote to his religious study as he could step away from the business side or trying to climb the corporate ladder of the business side a little bit more. So, in addition to his hosiery business, from 1786 to 1791, Stevens became part owner of an important iron works at Sifartha, located in the Welsh parish of Merthyr. I apologize right now for my Welsh pronunciation. The only thing I know about Welsh is that the sound of the words are nothing like their spelling would lead you to believe. So I'm trying my best, but I know that I am likely not even close to the Welsh pronunciation of these words. Anyways, Welsh mining and metal refinement had begun expanding and southern Wales became centered around the refinement of iron ore at a number of ironworks located around Merthyr. Stevens joined Richard Crochet in this venture, but wasn't quite as devoted as Crochet as he continued his other business and remained in London. Crochet was trying to master a new method for extracting iron ore, but was really struggling to make it happen throughout the 1780s. Well, Stevens continued to have his shares in the business, even as he began distancing himself from it. However, he pulled out his shares in the early 1790s, but by the end of 1791, Crawshay, his former business partner, finally figured out this new method that he'd been working on since the mid-1780s. He moved to Sephartha in 1792, and by the turn of the century, it was the largest and most productive ironworks in the world and it earned him the nickname Moloch the Iron King. He died with a fortune estimated at 1.5 million pounds. This is in 1800s money. Though Stevens was successful in business, unfortunately he had pulled out of the ironworks by the time that that business really began to take off. So though he missed the huge payday of the ironworks, During this time, the hosiery trade boomed, and he began giving away massive sums as a philanthropist. He was known to give gifts of hundreds or even thousands of pounds annually to people and charities that he consistently donated to. On the other side of this, he also lived super modestly, so he had a lot of expendable income. I said earlier that he lived in the same house in London for his entire life, which was Hookham's residence, and he also never married. So he had a lot of free time and money that the average person with a family or someone with more expensive tastes trying to live the upper-class lifestyle would likely not have. Well, anyways, after Hookham's death, Stevens became the chief partner in the hosiery business. But he then began relinquishing parts of it to Hookham's nephew, John Paterson in 1801. In 1805, Stevens left the business entirely and Paterson took over. However, two years later, in 1807, William Stevens died at 75 years old. So with that background, let's take a quick break and then we can come back to William Stevens' contributions to Old Testament studies. Welcome back. So this episode is going to be something of a warning for biblical studies, scholars, and writers. In graduate school, I had a professor tell me that theology is not done in a vacuum, and we all bring our own culture and biases to our conceptions of God and our interpretation of the biblical text. Stevens is no different, unfortunately. In previous episodes, we talked about Kennicott's collation of Hebrew texts with all the variants and the discussion of which reading is more accurate. We also talked about Hutchinson in a different episode, actually a couple episodes, who, besides reading the Bible in a really strange way, did not like the questioning of the received text. Part of this was that it could be undermining the church or it could be undermining the conception of God. Like, if the text is unreliable, what does that say about God preserving his truth, his biblical truth? Or what does that say about the truth of the church? Everything seems to be built upon the biblical text. And so if that is wrong, can we even trust that God is perceiving his word in his people? Personally, I think those are legitimate questions to ask. There is another, darker side to this, though. Besides the fear that it will undermine the church, some Hutchinson followers believed that it was a conspiracy by Jewish people to undermine the church. We have already seen that Hutchinson and some of his followers believed the Jews corrupted their own Bible in order to undermine Christianity. This is a wild claim that, to me, shows how much they were driven by their own anti-Semitic views rather than logic. Who would intentionally corrupt their own sacred text? The argument being that they intentionally corrupted the Hebrew Bible in order to make references to Jesus obscure and undermine Christian theology. However, Stevens took this anti-Semitism in a different way. He did write a book anonymously called A New and Faithful Translation of Letters of Mr. Labe, Hebrew Professor in the University, to the Reverend Dr. Benjamin Kennicott with an introductory preface. He wrote this in 1773. If you remember from way back in the Kennicott episode, the letters from Mr. Labé were written in French by a man named Dumay, who used to work for Kennicott, but then was dropped from the project and began writing letters criticizing and attempting to dismiss Kennicott's work as unreliable. The important part for us here is that the introductory preface and appendix of this translation were written by William Stevens. Also, the translation was by William Stevens. Remember that he studied French and was quite proficient in it. As you might have guessed, Stevens wholeheartedly agrees with Dumais' criticism of Kennicott's work. But he focuses upon specific elements as notably problematic and uses the appendix to put forward his own viewpoint that clearly aligns him with the Hutchinson crowd and tries to work out Dumais' criticism in light of Hutchinson's work. So in the preface, Stevens argues that the manuscripts of Kennecott were poor quality and untrustworthy. This is the same argument made in the letters of Mr. Labbe. However, Stevens goes beyond this argument for poor quality to actually claim that these variant manuscripts were fabrications. He claims that he spoke to a Hebraist, who he doesn't actually name, that told him about the poor quality and likely fabricated nature of Kennicott's manuscripts. Apparently, this Hebraist had examined the manuscripts himself, as Stevens wrote, quote, I had the luck to meet with a Hebraist who had carefully inspected many of the manuscripts collated by Dr. Kennicott. He declared they were, for the most part, wretched beyond conception and that he suspected them either to have been written by boys or by ignorant scribblers to make a penny of them. End quote. So most scholars currently believe that this Hebraist was Dumay, the same guy who wrote the letters of Mr. Laabe. He clearly had an axe to grind against Kennicott, and whoever the person was, their argument was at least good enough to convince. Stevens that the manuscripts were forgeries. Then again, if Stevens had already heard about Jewish attempts at forging or corrupting the Hebrew Bible, he might not have needed much convincing to believe that these variant manuscripts were fake. Remember that some of the Hutchinsonian crowd believed that the Old Testament clearly pointed to Jesus but was obscured by Jews to intentionally undermine Christianity. In this background, Kennicott's variants being deliberate forgeries would not be completely surprising. I also think that it is valuable to give a little background on Judaism and commerce in England at the time, especially considering the commercial aspect of William Stephen's life. So in 1753, The Jewish Naturalization Bill, what many at the time called the Jew Bill, brought the naturalization of British Jews and was strongly opposed by many merchants and Anglican clergy. From the merchant side, they thought Jews were untrustworthy traders and financiers. Keep in mind that in the 1750s, Stevens was a successful merchant and a strong supporter of the church so he would have clearly been familiar with all the arguments surrounding the 1753 bill. In the preface to his translation, he includes his sentiments of Jewish commercial practices, as he says, quote, The Jews have always accounted it one part of their profession to cheat Christians of their money by counterfeit wares of every kind, end quote. He even claims that they counterfeited coins, stating, quote, when the study of coins came into vogue, mercenary Jewish artists took advantage of the public curiosity and produced spurious coins in great abundance with such a face of antiquity that the best judges might be, and without a doubt were, frequently imposed upon, quote. So with these sentiments, Stevens then can make the leap to Kennecott's work. As Stephen asks if, quote, the same mercenary spirit which produces counterfeit coins was able to produce counterfeit manuscripts, end quote. In case you think that this is a genuine question, he follows it with the statement, quote, The state of many manuscripts, which have an appearance of being hastily or carelessly written for mercenary purposes, is scarcely to be accounted for on any other principle." Quote. Now, keep in mind, Kennicott was not Jewish. So in Stevens' mind, he was being duped. Stevens thought that Kennecott was falling into a trap that made him use a Pharisee-type methodology of picking and sifting through Scripture, and so the Jews were giving him both fake manuscripts and a bad methodology that would lead him to destroy Christianity. If you're wondering why the word Pharisee was employed here, remember, if you know your New Testament, that they were the group that killed Jesus. And also, the main religious leaders that throughout the Gospels, Jesus argued with and told them that their understanding of the Hebrew Bible was losing the spirit of the text. So to call someone a Pharisee was to say that they were using a method of the people who killed God. Short way to say that. So as Stevens claimed, quote, The Jews have been inventing fables and subterfuges for above a thousand years to defeat all the attempts of the ministers of Christ and to fortify themselves in their unbelief. And are they now of a sudden become enamored of the labors of a Christian divine? What views can they have in giving encouragement to his work unless they suppose he is bringing into the Christian church a Trojan horse replete with the instruments of discord and skepticism. At least, if no other ill purpose is promoted by it, this effect may naturally arise, that Christian scholars may be tempted to waste their time in picking and sifting of letters, like the Pharisees of old, till the scripture, instead of being applied as the power of God to salvation, shall dwindle into a lifeless and barren object of criticism, and then the Jews may see some part of their wishes accomplished. End quote. So, poor Kennecott was being deceived by Jews, who were writing up Hebrew manuscripts to trick him. As Stephen ends his Appendix claiming, quote, When I consider and compare these and other glaring inconsistencies, I am then obliged to conclude that, however pious his subscribers may be in their intentions, they have undesignedly verified what Potiphar's wife falsely pretended against Joseph. They have brought in a Hebrew unto us to mock us, end quote. If you didn't notice the Genesis 38 reference of Potiphar's wife, who was the prison keeper in Egypt and tried to trick Joseph into sleeping with her, he says no. And then she says, you've brought a Hebrew into our house to make fun of us and try to sleep with me being your wife. And then Joseph gets thrown into jail. He is claiming that this is actually what is happening, that now the Jews are making fun of Christians through this ploy with Kennecott. So regardless of how many followers Kennecott had, because truthfully, Kennecott really did have super powerful people in the church and government, including princes and kings, who subscribed to his work, Stevens was convinced that he had been tricked. However, the problem of Stephen's work came out later and actually from one of his own friends and a fellow Hutchinson follower, Jones of Nayland. Jones admitted years later, after Stephen's translation, Jones admitted years later that the letters of Mr. Labe was a fabrication and Dumais was untrustworthy. He, Dumais, in fact, had made up much of his argument against Kennecott, and his critiques were mostly baseless. Though Jones of Nayland admitted this, Stevens never seems to have changed his position. Despite his friend changing his position, Stevens appeared to continue to believe that Kennecott, who is actually an Oxford Hebrew scholar, was being deceived by Jewish forgers. So this is where I'm gonna leave us today. William Stevens stands out as an unfortunate warning for biblical writers. Though many anti-Semitic ideas were coming out of the Hutchinson followers, Stevens took it to a new level. He believed that any variant manuscripts, even those examined by a well-respected Hebrew scholar, must be forgeries by a Jewish conspiracy. Even when his friend changed his position and realized that he had been wrong. Stevens maintained his position that it was Kennecott who was deceived. There was one Hebrew Bible and it was to be read in the Hutchinson method. Any variants were attempts to destroy the church and the Bible. He let his conception of Jews in the Bible drive his writing to the point that he was unable to consider the legitimacy of Kennecott's work or the possibility that Kennecott's work might even be advantageous to the church and our understanding of the Hebrew Bible. Anything varying from his understanding of the Hebrew Bible and the church's position on it was automatically suspect and an attempt to undermine the faith. So if you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening. And then please return in two weeks For Johann Christoph Doderlein, thank you for listening to Old Testament Studies and Unacademic Modern History. If you'd like to contact me with episode ideas, questions, comments, or just deeper discussion about Old Testament or ancient Hebrew linguistics and scholarship, feel free to email me at modernoldtestamentstudies at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening.